Good morning, everybody. Hope you'll bear with me They're fighting through a little bit of a cold. Uh, I wasn't bellowing as I normally do when I sing here every, day, every Sunday, but uh, was singing with you in spirit, and hopefully my voice will hang in there. Uh, I want to thank Pastor Aaron for the opportunity uh, to speak with you. Pastors uh, understand that the pulpit is not theirs. It belongs to God, but they guard it jealously, and he is the gatekeeper. Uh, and to be offered this opportunity, that's a privilege. And I thank you, and I pray that, that God uh, will help me to honor that gift and that blessing. You know, we just finished a great Advent series where Pastor Aaron was talking to us about waiting well. Uh, and he, uh, we looked at so many stories of so many lives of people waiting for the Savior to come. Uh, we looked at Anna the prophetess, and, and we looked at Simeon. In the Song of Simeon, we looked at Elizabeth, and we looked at Mary, the mother of Jesus, and it was all about how they were waiting well before he came. And they waited, but the interesting thing is, of course, that waiting was not sitting on your hands, it was not twiddling your thumbs, there was a lot to it. And then our Savior came, and he was born, and we just celebrated that. Merry Christmas, by the way. Right? We just celebrated Christmas, and our Savior is born, and he lived his life, and he conducted his ministry, and he died for us, and he was laid in a grave for us, and he rose for us. He ascended into heaven. He's seated at the right hand of the Father, but he's coming back. So we're waiting well again. Now, the good news here is that, one, all the notes you took from all those sermons, that's a good deal because you're going to get to use those all again. But the second thing is, what does waiting well look for, for us now? Because that's what we're doing. We're starting a new year. We have celebrated Christmas. The ball has dropped last night. It's New Year's. It's the first day of 2023. How are we going to wait well? What are we going to do? What is that about? Well, at the core of it, now that Jesus has come and is coming back, waiting well has to do with the Great Commission. We're supposed to be going out into Jerusalem and Judea and all the corners of the earth and preaching the gospel, right? Living the gospel out in our lives before other people. And that's what this is about. Now, the passage that I've chosen for you is from the book of Mark. It's Mark chapter 4, verses 35 to 41. You'll find it on page 839 in your pew Bible, or you will find it, uh, you know, if you have your Bible, you'll find it there. Uh, And it's a passage that has a lot to do with this. It's part of the story of the death and resurrection of Christ, the incredible story that's coming. Uh, and it allows us to talk about how we wait well in a couple of situations. One, on the one hand, I wanted to address the, the different views of Jesus that are so prevalent in our society today, because it seems like we're living in a society that more and more is embracing other things than Jesus or is absolutely opposed to him. And I wanted to do it so that, uh, today in order to give, help people understand how to give other people a reason for the hope that they have. On the other hand, as Pastor Aaron has been saying during the Advent series, while Christmas is a time of great joy for many, it's a time of great hardship for others. Uh, my sister just lost her husband. This is her first Christmas without him. It was a very hard time, very difficult. <coughs> And so many people today, even here, right now, in our congregation, are facing struggles 
and suffering and loss and to be able to bring the comfort and the peace and the strength of Christ to people who are suffering would be a blessing and would truly be a part of waiting well until he returns. Unfortunately, this passage will do both. If you've turned to it, I'm going to go ahead and read it. Now I'm going to apologize. I pulled the NIV and put it up on the screen. You can read that. It's close enough. Um, but what I'm going to do is I'm going to read from the Bible that you have in front of you, which is the ESV. Uh, and again, it's Mark chapter 4, verse 35 to 41. On that day when evening had come, he said to them, let us go across to the other side, he, Jesus. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was. And other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But he, Jesus, was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. And he said to them, why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? And this is God's word. Pray with me if you would. Lord, we're opening your word in your worship for the first time this year. We pray that you will pour out your spirit upon us. Come, Holy Spirit, in all your power, all your strength, and all your majesty, and all your might. Come, in all your wisdom, and knowledge, and understanding, and insight. Come, in all your mercy, and compassion, your peace, and your love. Do not just dwell with us, dwell in us. Fill us to overflowing, that we may be your vessels, that we may be your ambassadors that we may be your children. This will happen, Lord, if only your word is spoken and only your word is heard and only your word is written upon our hearts. And this is what we ask in the great and powerful name of Jesus Christ. Amen. When you're looking at the passage, there's really three things, because I'm a pastor, there's always three things, right? Uh, <laughs> We are so predictable. Uh, <laughs> I even ordered the same coffee every morning. Uh, there's three things that I want to draw out of this uh, for us as we step off in the new year. Uh, the first is the irrefutable truth of Jesus. The second thing I want to draw out to you is the frightening power of Jesus. And the third thing I hope you'll see is the furious love of Jesus the irrefutable truth of Jesus and his existence, the frightening power of Jesus Christ, and the furious love that he has for each and every one of us here today. Now, I look at an irrefutable truth. The first point, it's the first point in our passage, it can be found in something that you probably are taking for granted and actually may not even notice as a 21st century citizen of the United States, and it's this. It's the details in this short little passage. Take a look at verse 36. It says that they took him just as he was. Now, background. 
This is throwing us back to Mark chapter 4, verse 1. What's happened up before that is Jesus has been doing things that have never been done. I've not been seen in hundreds of years. He has uh, healed a man with leprosy. He's healed a man paralyzed from birth. He's cast out demons. People found out he did that. They start bringing all their relatives and family members. And he's doing it for all of them. And word of him has gotten around. But he's trying to tell them, listen, the miracles, they're not the point of me being here. The miracles are pointing to why I'm here. And I want to tell you about that. I want to tell you about why I came and the hope that I bring. But he's getting crowded and he's getting pressed because people are coming. So he needs, he, but he wants to speak to them. So he's on the Sea of Galilee. <coughs> Which is a natural place to, to speak because it's like a natural amphitheater. All right, it, it's, it sits in a bowl, and we're going to come back to this in, in a little while and talk about it a little more. And there's a, this great crowd can come to the shore, but if they put him in a boat in the water, he's got room to speak. And so that's what he does. And starting at the beginning of chapter 4, he's speaking to them, and he's telling them about everything he wants them to know. And when he's finished teaching, this passage, just where it just says, just as he was, is telling us he can get out of the boat, he didn't wash or change his clothes. He didn't come and get with his disciples and say, okay, look, we're going to the eastern shore of Galilee, next tour, <coughs> excuse me, part of our ministry tour. Uh, let's pack some food. Let's get some water, maybe some more clothes. He didn't do any of that. He just left as he was. <coughs> excuse me. Verse 36 also says there's other boats with him that are on the water. And verse 38 says that when the storm broke, Jesus was asleep on a cushion in the back. When you look at the Greek, you could also translate it as the cushion, which would make perfect sense to the readers of Mark's gospel or the hearers of it in Mark's time. Because in boats on the Sea of Galilee, uh, if you were a ferry boat, this is how you made your living. You ferried people from one side to the other. If you were a fishing boat, you might try to make an extra buck or two by ferrying people from one side to the other. Now, the bow of the ship, any sailors and marines here? Okay. Brother, God bless you. You're going to have to help me out now, all right? Hand signals, all right? The bow of the ship, that's the pointy front end of the boat, okay? That's it. That's where the waves impact the bow, and, and they break, and they, the spray comes over the bow. If you sit up there, you're going to get wet, right? The gunnels amidships, they're going to be a little lower, especially in a fishing boat where you're hauling catch in. The waves are breaking over there. Now the stern, that's the back of the boat, okay? That's the farthest away from where the waves are breaking and the best chance to stay dry. So if you are somebody who's of importance or wealthy, you're going to stay in the stern when you cross the Sea of Galilee, right? Now, in the back of the boats, they would put a cushion. It would be an additional charge. But if you could pay it, you, that's where you would stay, so you could sit in comfort, right? Now, why are all these details important? I'm talking to you about the details of this, right? Jesus just calmed the storm. I'm talking to you about him wearing the same clothes and sleeping in a boat. They're important because they are details. You see, this level of detail is not found in the mythological writing before or during the time that the Gospel of Mark is being written. And the reason why is, <coughs> excuse me, they don't contribute to the primary point of the story. They don't tell you anything. <coughs> Just a second. 
going to be hanging on to this cup, I can tell. They don't move the story along. <coughs> I'll get it. So why are they here? They're here because somebody remembered them. That's why. <coughs> what they are. <coughs> Pray for me, just a minute. Thank you. Yes, there are details of a story that don't move the point along. If you look at the Iliad and you look at Achilles and the story where he refuses to fight. And Petroclus says, look, I'm your best friend, come fight. He says, no. Petroclus says, let me wear your armor, which Achilles allows him to do. Petroclus gets slain in battle. <coughs> the armor's hung on the wall of Troy. Achilles comes back to fight. You will see great detail about how his armor was made by Hephaestus and what he etched on it. Why? It's part of his persona. It's part of the story. His armor, it tells which person, which God favored from the Greek pantheon. And that makes sense. These things don't contribute to anything. Either these accounts, what they are, they're details because somebody remembered them. Now, that means that either these accounts are true, about Jesus are true, or Mark anticipated the genre of realistic historical fiction by about 2,000 years. Not likely, and it wasn't seen for 2,000 years since. Why is this important? We're talking about extraordinary events. He just stopped a storm at sea. And elsewhere in the Gospels, the healing that he does, the message that he brings, the sacrifice that he makes for us, they're all real. They're there. And you can see it woven into the very fabric of the verses in the details. <coughs> Man. <coughs> I don't know about you. I drive into New York every day, right? I don't look out at the Hudson and see somebody stopping a storm at sea. It's not common. It's not normal. They're extraordinary. And what it's telling us is these events are real. This person is real. And that's important because one of the things we do while we're waiting well is what theologians call apologetics. It's how we share 
our Christian faith, how the dialogue about Christianity that's ongoing in our society unfolds. And when you look at those details, you can have great confidence and hope as you speak to people about the truth and reality of Scripture. And it's a call to us to do that as we are waiting well until he returns again. Now, our society says a lot of things. It says things like, we can't know the real Jesus. It says, all we have is a collection of old myths and legends. These stories are only what the church wants us to believe. The many eyewitness details in this account show that that's just not true. Mark's account is proof that things in the Bible really did happen as they were laid out. And <coughs> excuse me, understand, Mark's account is written too soon after the events for it to be mythologized to begin with. It's written within the lifetime of people who saw the events unfold, a large number of whom are hostile to what the apostles are saying. So if you say this and it's not true, somebody's going to call you on it. They're going to call you on it publicly. That, in our society today, we kind of look at this and go, well, we, you know, it's a myth. I'll sort it out later. I want to take some things and keep others out of the, out of the gospel. So one, if it's a myth, why are you doing that? But the second thing is, uh, if the Bible is true, if it's a historical account, then we have to take it as it comes. That means we have to take Jesus as he comes. And that is great confidence and hope as we look at what unfolds in the rest of the story. Now, in our society, there have been a lot of attempts to say, all right, I'm going to debunk this. It's a myth. It's not true. One of them was done by a man named Simon Greenleaf. He was one of the founders of Harvard Law School. <coughs> Excuse me. And Simon set out to prove that the Gospels themselves, the, the Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, uh, could not be trusted uh, commentary by subjecting them to the, the rules of the courts of law of the day. He started out to disprove it. <coughs> what he ended up saying was this. All that Christianity asks of men on this subject is that they would be consistent with themselves, that they would treat its evidences as they treat the evidence of other things, and that they would try and judge its actors and witnesses as they deal with their fellow men. When testifying to human affairs and actions in human tribunals, let the witnesses be compared with themselves, with each other, and with the surrounding facts and circumstances, and let their testimony be sifted as if it were given in a court of justice on the side of the adverse party, the witnesses being subjected to a rigorous cross-examination. <clears throat> the result, it is confidently believed, will be an undoubting conviction of their integrity, ability, and truth. That was back in the late 19th century, mid to late 19th century, mid 20th century. A guy named Josh McDowell tried it again. He set out to disprove Christianity and debunk it. He ended up writing a book, More Than a Carpenter which has since been rewritten into a two-volume series called Evidence That Demands a Verdict. Late 20th century, a reporter with the Chicago Tribune set out to debunk it by looking at the gospel accounts, the same accounts that we're looking at now. He wanted to do it because his wife was born again and they had both been avowed atheists, and he said, quote, I want my wife back, end of quote. 
His name was Lee Strobel. He ended up writing a book called The Case for Christ, and he's now a pastor. The truth, <laughs> the truth of the story stands because the truth of the account stands. And as we step off in the new year, as we wait well until his return, go confidently knowing that what you are taking is on rock-solid ground and look for those other things that, that try to learn everything you can about it, reading it, studying it, seeing what people have written about it. That's the first thing, the irrefutable truth of our account. Now, that's important because it's going to lead us to the second point, and that's the frightening power of Jesus, and it's frightening really for two reasons. The first one is it's beyond, you know, the apostles are frightened, the disciples in the boat are frightened because Jesus' power is beyond their ability to measure. It's infinite, as we're going to see. And the other thing is it's beyond their ability to control. It's unmanageable. Jesus Christ is infinite, unmanageable power. How do you see that? In verse 37, you'll notice that it says that a furious squall arose, right? Now, the Greek phrase here that translated furious squall is lilops magale. You'll recognize lilops storm, magale big. You'll recognize the root of our English word mega in that big, large, grand Here's why. I told you we'd come back to the Sea of Galilee. The Sea of Galilee sits in a bowl. It's basically sitting about 700 feet below sea level. A natural amphitheater of stone rises up around it with valleys with steep high walls leading into it. About 30 miles north, 30 minutes driving time today, sits Mount Hermon 9,000 feet above sea level. Cold air mass at 9,000 feet, hot air mass at 700 feet below sea level. You start to see the problem. They're colliding all the time. The wind is whipping down those valleys right into this bowl, and it's swirling around the bowl. Storms were intense. They could be frequent, and they could come up at short notice. Now, this storm was so, extent, uh, so, so intense that the experienced fishermen in that boat thought that they were going to die. They're fighting furiously. They're trimming sails. They're, they're jettisoning ballast. I got to explain that. They're throwing stuff overboard so the boat's lighter, right? And it floats better, all right? That's what they're doing. And, and they're, they're, they're just tying everything down. And then they come to Jesus and say, you've got to help us. And how did he do it? He spoke. He spoke. Noticed no histrionics, no melodrama, no, you know, behold my power kind of thing. He doesn't break off, you know, shuck off his, his cloak and, you know, stand there in his muscle shirt and flex his arms and go, here we go. You know, I'm going to show you how this is done. He doesn't do that. He also doesn't invoke anybody else's name. If you think about it, after Jesus ascends and the disciples are doing, the apostles are doing their miracles, they say, in the name of Jesus, get up and walk. He doesn't invoke anybody's name. He just spoke. Now, what we read here is a translation of peace, be still. As you look at the Greek and you're looking at the words and how they were used in society of today, another way to interpret what he said was, be quiet, be muzzled. Muzzled? That's how you talk to a pet. You got a dog that's yappy or likes to bite. You say, Can we put your muzzle on, right? It's not how you talk to a storm, a life-threatening storm. Yet that's how he spoke. Be quiet. Be muzzled, and it worked. The result is found in verse 39. We went from a lilops magale, a great storm, right, to a galene magale, 
a great calm. Now, what that means is, is again, something you need to pay attention to. He says a great calm. When you're in a storm at sea, all right, the way it usually works is you get the wind and the waves. The wind dies down, but the waves, they're with you for a while. And they'll eventually settle out. And if you want to test this theory, go home tonight, fill up your bathtub with water, put a cork in there, and just wop your hands through. Right? You'll feel the wind coming off of your hand as you go through, as you work it through the waves. Then pull your hand out. The wind has stopped, but those waves are going to keep going, and that cork's going to keep bouncing. Right? That's the way it is in the ocean, just on a much bigger and more frightening scale. Right? What happened here was the wind just didn't stop immediately. The waves did, too. It's not how a storm works. What does it mean? Jesus is declaring his divinity loud and clear to all of us. All of us. You see, in his day, the people are looking at the, the sea, and the sea represents chaos, capital C. It's, it's disorderly. It's beyond their control. It's destructive, all the destructive forces that they can't fight, and they make their living on it by God's grace. And when he just speaks and it listens to him, they're thinking Genesis 1-9, the Lord spoke, and the land and the sea were formed. When Jesus does this, when he just speaks and controls the chaotic ocean beyond their control, when he speaks and controls the ocean that God spoke into existence, he's telling them in the boat, if I can do anything about it, what are you talking about? Power? I don't just have power. I am power. He's saying anything and everyone who has power derives it from me. They get it on loan from me. Anything that has power comes from me. I am power. God is the master of the tides. God is the master of the seas. In calming the storm this way, Jesus is saying, that's me. Now, that's an incredible comfort to start. It's going to pose some questions we've got to answer here in a minute. But it's an incredible comfort because Jesus... The one that I cry out to during the storm of my life is the God of infinite power. That's incredible. No storm is infinite, but his power is. I'm in good hands, right? <coughs> if Jesus is real, point one, irrefutable truth, and he has infinite power, if he is the master of tides and the, the master of the storm, then there's a bunch of things. I can face any storm in my life no matter how overwhelmed I may feel at the moment. And there's meaning to my life because he is mine and I am his. But here's the thing. You got to give up control of your life in order to get it. And that's the second thing that bothers the disciples in the boat is that this power is unmanageable. They can't control it. They can't shape it. See, and that's something we should think about as we look at waiting well for him to return. We tend to try to fit God into our lives. We tend to try and control God and say, God, look, I have this problem. I need you to do this for me. Like God's a Coke machine. Here's my 250 for prayer, and you give me my 12-ounce can of whatever it is I asked for. Right? It doesn't work that way. We talk to him like he's a contractor. You know, you want to, you know, renovate your bathroom. You want to renovate your kitchen. You talk to the contractor. Contractor says, well, what do you want? You say, I want this color. I want that. I want these tiles. I want that sink, this granite, whatever it is you're doing. And on the day the contractor shows up, he comes with his crew and this stuff, and he does all this to your specifications. 
And that's how we tend to come to God in the storms of our life. God doesn't come like a contractor to renovate your kitchen. You call this contractor, he's showing up with a wrecking ball and he's leveling the place. He's wiping out because what he's telling you is, no, no, I, I didn't just come to solve your problem. I came to make you new. I didn't come to fix this life. I came to make you a new creation and give you new life. And it's got to be done my way. My way. Now, that's one of the things that they wrestle with. And you can see it in the disciples when you look at the passage. They go from terror, you know, scared, frightened, we're fighting for our lives, to indignant, Lord, don't you care if we drown? Okay. To terrified, the wind and the waves obey this guy. Wow, what are we going to do? And that takes you to the third point, because if you think about this for a minute, if he is infinite power, and anyone and anything that has power derives it from him, that means the storms in my life I got to talk to him about, because he's either brought them or he's allowed them. And he's given them the power that they have. And what am I going to do? And that's what the disciples are really asking when they say, don't you care if we drown? They've seen him do the healings. They know who he is. They've got a better idea. They don't know quite yet, right? They know this power that's available to him and what he can do. So what they're doing is they're actually bringing in this this two-sided coin. They're saying, if you care about us, you'll solve this problem of this storm. And the flip side of the coin is, if you don't solve the problem of this storm, you don't care about us. And how often do we end up walking up to Jesus with the storms of our lives with that same two-sided coin flipping in our hands? And that's an approach that a lot of people take. And we can't do that. We can't do that as we look at this. And the reason why the third point is his furious love, but I'm going to get to that, and, and that's what we're going to talk about. There's two ways to look. Well, there's two parts to the answer here that I want to give you. One, based on reason. One is based on your heart. One's a head answer. One's a hard answer. Uh, either without the other is, is not an accurate, complete statement. Both of them together, they're very powerful. Here's how it goes. Now, we look at Jesus, and we just said, okay, you have infinite power. Fine. But you have to solve my problem the way I want you to. And some of these problems are hard. I don't want my loved ones to die. I don't want to lose my job. Right? I don't want to have to deal with this physical ailment that I have. There's a lot of them. And what we do is we come to Jesus and we say, we acknowledge that you have infinite power and you can fix this problem. But your wisdom can't exceed my own. You have to answer it the way I want you to answer it. Now, that doesn't work. He has infinite power, but his wisdom is limited to ours. How many folks here saw the the Marvel movies, the Avengers, right? That came out past several years? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, gotta love them, right? I'm a junkie. I'm a fan. I'm addicted. I have to meet with Pastor Aaron about that to counsel me. In the Avengers, there's a guy called the Incredible Hulk. He's this big green behemoth. He can flatten New York City. He's got the brain of a two-year-old. Okay. That's what we just made God. Your power can exceed mine, but your wisdom can't. Can't do that. If his power is infinite, we have to allow that his wisdom is infinitely greater than ours. And that leads to the hard answer. So why am I trusting this guy? 
right? Why do I want to bet that this guy has the answers to my problems? Here's why. Because just as they turned to Jesus to take care of this storm in the boat, just as we turned to Jesus to take care of the storms in our lives, if you know him as your Lord and Savior, Jesus, he took his own storm. Actually, he took ours. He bowed his head in the storm of God's wrath and justice for our sin. Our sin, our iniquity was laid on him. And he bore that storm alone. In this day, you have a great high priest. And one day, the day of atonement, they're going to go into the Holy of Holies in the temple, the temple mount, to atone for the sins of the high priest himself and the sins of Israel. An elaborate cleansing ceremony goes on all day just so this person can go in at one time to do this, to atone for their sins and the sins of Israel. The Bible tells us God's plan is better. That's just pointing to what Jesus came to do. And when you take a look at Hebrews chapter 7, verses 26 and 27, he lays it out for us. He said, said, Jesus is our high priest. And more than that, he's our sacrifice. Such a high priest truly meets our need. One who is holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, exalted above the heavens. Unlike the other high priests, he does not need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. He sacrificed for their sins once for all when he offered himself. You see, Jesus bore the load, bore the storm that we couldn't. He carried the load that we couldn't carry. And we meet the storms of our lives and we come to him. He said, remember, he said, pick up your cross and follow me. He didn't say, pick up your cross, go that way, and I'll catch up to you when I clear the paperwork off my desk. Follow me because I'll blaze the trail you can't blaze. I'll carry the cross you can't carry. I'll bear the burden you can't. I'll take on your sin and the judgment for it so that when you come to your struggles, you know who has what kind of power is with you and how much I care. Isaiah, I love this passage, Isaiah 53, verses 4 through 6. It says, surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and inflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Why would you do that? We have all gone astray, and we like it. People sin because they want to. We've gone astray, and yet you paid this price for us. Why would you do that? Why would you do that? What sense does that make? John three sixteen. for God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son that whoever might believe in him might not perish, but have eternal life. The storms of our life are furious, but he has a furious love for each and every person here. I don't know if you are a Christian or if you are somebody who's sitting on the fence or if you're somebody that came because your family dragged you in here. I don't know. 
I don't know what struggles you're facing, what storms and challenges you have, but I know this. He's the answer. And we can trust him. The proof is in the pudding, as they say. So a last story, and we'll close with prayer. <clears throat> there was a man. Uh, he was uh, a friend of uh, uh, Dale Moody and did a lot of touring with him in, in, in a lot of the, the evangelistic tours. Uh, and a very wealthy man who lived in Chicago, had a lot of money in real estate, uh, and uh, was planning to go to England with Moody for his tour. And a fire came, the horrible Chicago fire everybody knows about. Uh, devastated the city. Uh, burned up a lot of his real estate assets. He lost a lot. And he looked at his wife and his kids, and he said, listen, you guys go on and go to England. Go be with Moody. Uh, I'll take care of this. I'll tie everything up, and then I'm going to come join you. So they get on the ship, and they leave. Halfway across the Atlantic, the ship founders. There's a problem, and it sinks. For weeks, he hears nothing. And then he finally gets a telegram from his wife saying simply, I alone live. Lost his daughters. His daughters. Wow. Look at my daughter in the pew. I'm just like, can't go there. So he ties up affairs. He gets on a ship and he goes to join his wife in England to console her. And ironically, about the time that his ship is around the area where his wife's ship sank, he penned these words. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, he has taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. The man's name was Horatio Spofford. He's the author of the song you're about to sing. Let's pray. Father, gracious God, We thank you that the truth on which we stand, the truth, the word that we come to, to find you is true, and that truth is irrefutable. Lord Jesus, we thank you that when we come to you, we come to a God of infinite power and infinite wisdom and a God of furious love who loves us so much. He would come here to lay down his life. We're born knowing that at some point, barring the imminent return of our Savior, we will die. You were born to die and to die for us. How could we merit such a gift? How, how could we ever earn it? All by your grace, Lord, all by your grace, and we thank you. Come, Holy Spirit, and be with us today. It's the beginning of our new year. New year. Touch us, Lord. Fill us with your spirit to overflowing. Let it burn like a fire brightly within us and let us go forth to proclaim the good news about this Lord Jesus, that he has come, that he died and he rose and he's coming again. And he walks with us and we will be with him forever if we but believe. And let us bring the confidence and the hope, the peace and the comfort and the strength with that word today, this year, and for the rest of our lives. We ask it in the precious name of Jesus Christ. Amen.